Czechoslovakia, or Czech Republic, I should say, sorry for that, uh, who are, uh, at the European Compliance and Ethics Institute, SCCE 2017. So, Roy, uh, welcome. Thank you, Tom. I always look forward to these. So, Roy, we've got a lot to talk about. So, uh, what's on your mind? Oh, well, I have one fun one for you. All right. I don't know if you were in this session. I don't think you were. Uh, Jenny o I'm being facetious. <laughs> Jenny O'Brien and I and a guy named Tom Fox did a session on um, influence. And I got uh, a question that was uh, just fascinating. I was asking, I was telling people that I don't think the compliance officer ought to be the chair of the compliance committee. Right. For 22 years, people told me I'm wrong. The majority of people believe I'm wrong. And I've listened to every objection there is, and I still think it's a wasted opportunity. Of course you could run it. Of course you could run it better than anybody else. But it's a seat of authority. It's a seat of accountability, unlike any other opportunity you have to give someone. When I was a compliance officer 20, 20 years ago, in a physician group practice, we gave it to a doctor. <clears throat> when we needed to go talk to doctors, they said, well, who do you think you are, administrator? And I said, well, sorry, you can't play that card. I got the chair of the compliance committee here who agrees with me, and he's with me, and he's going to explain to you what I just explained to you, and he's going to back me up, and you're probably going to listen to him, because you doctors listen to doctors. So uh, I was asking the audience that... Um, <laughs> if they had compliance committees, many had. I said, who chairs it? And I got a really bunch of great answers. It was about the fifth person before I got somebody who said the compliance officer, which I needed to make my point. Right. I had somebody had a board member, somebody had top leadership, and somebody said general counsel. And there's a couple of people in the room who know that I think there's a conflict of interest sometimes between defending the company, circling the wagons, and that sort of thing, and the compliance officer is supposed to be completely independent and gather all data, good and bad, and present it to leadership. We don't want to get into that right now. 
But suffice it to say, anybody knows, I think there ought to be great independence. And the couple people in the room who thought I would think it was crazy for the general counsel to chair the compliance committee was waiting for me to like go a little bonkers. Problem was, I never thought about it. And, and luckily for me, I just didn't react. I said, well, let me, let me think. Does this fit with my logic? Does this fit with the idea that I want to use that slot? I mean, the compliance officer can still set the agenda. Sure. The compliance officer should set the agenda. And, the, and, and whoever chairs it should enjoy that. They take the minutes and help between meetings and make sure things get done and uh, prep the chair before the meeting, make sure people are ready and do all that stuff. And so a lot of stuff gets still gets done and, you know, and, and whatnot, but the chair comes in and orchestrates it and makes sure people listen and do their thing and throws their weight around. And so anyways, I said, I, I, I can't think of a reason why I wouldn't do that. Matter of fact, my first gut reaction, and by the way, Tom, this is still within 24 hours, I reserve the right of completely changing my mind. <laughs> 22 years and the question never came up. So this is my first 24 hour reaction of a very dead tired guy who's been on the road 10 days straight working 10, 12, 14 hours a day. And uh, just switched eight time zones or whatever it is. Um, <clears throat> and I, I'm, the more I think about it, I slept on it last night, I'm thinking it's genius. If, if, if general counsels tend to be a little resistant to some of the pieces of a compliance program that occur, which some of us believe happens. If you put them in the chair's role and they're going through problems and investigations and auditing and education and survey results, the good news and the bad news, and a problem services, and the group is leaning towards not addressing it, the chair is going to have a little extra skin in the game. If they don't address it, and the investigatory world comes in later and says, well, tell us what you did. Somebody's going to tell them the issue came up at the compliance committee and it never went anywhere. Well, who's the chair? Unfortunately, the folks in the enforcement committee like to get as high as they can when they and punch people in the nose. And um, so I would, I, I'm right at the moment, I'm all for the general count. They're insanely well-educated, exceedingly experienced, and it will get them to study and participate and understand and... And they live in caves, so they're... they're yeah, and see, you're never going to let me live that down, nor do I think maybe you should. Uh, and again, just to be clear, it's not... Everybody. It was a sweeping, unfair generalization about in-house and outside counsel who, you know, in my opinion, and by the way, there's nothing in that document that is new. We've been saying it for 22 years. In one, I've got documents that are older than your children and that say that stuff. And, but now it's all important to the outside counsel and, 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 and the general counsel. And... Uh, because the DOJ said it instead of their peers, like you. Did they listen to you? Have all, let me ask you this. Have all your outside counsel you've met over the years and you've been telling, evangelizing the uh, role of the compliance officer in the function and compliance program, has any outside counsel or general counsel disagreed with you? Been resistant? Numerous <clears throat> times. 
I'm, so I'm not talking about you weren't in a cave. You were outside the cave screaming, come out of the cave. But you, you, you are appropriately defending your profession, so in the end, you win. So let, me, <laughs> let me go back to your point about the uh, compliance committee, because yeah. I, I don't think it's wrong to have a general counsel, but what I would say is it's a missed opportunity. The opportunity being if you can have your COO or executive vice president be the chairman, I think that's a step towards not only the operationalization, but when you have a non-lawyer, non-compliance professional chairing that committee, I think it gives it extra stature. Well, let me ask you this, and this is me backpedaling now in 24 hours of thinking and thinking it might be okay. Here's another thing that it might put the general counsel in a tough spot. Um, the general counsels, part of their role is to defend the company from outside attack, rightfully so, because there's a lot of unfair uh, lawsuits and, and, and enforcement activities sometimes could, might go a little too far and they don't see all the good, and the general counsel has to be there helping leadership, saying, see everything, uh, appreciate what we've done, Here's our view of what happened, and they're there to, to defend the organization in part, one of many roles, one of many roles. Now, if you're chairing the compliance committee, and the compliance committee is supposed to be this unbiased, look at all the facts, gather all the good news, bad news, under attorney-client privilege when appropriate, and bring that news to the leadership and say, Maybe we have got an outside independent opinion from a guy like Tom Fox who understands corruption laws like nobody else. And we think we ought to turn left or right. Does that put the general counsel in an odd spot? Because they got to rip off this hat and I am the chair of the turn over the, the rocks, uh, look at all the information. And, and then the next hour they're in their office defending the company. It's, it is a bit of an internal conflict, and I guess the other one I would think of is that you might want to have the general counsel and the legal department, if they're doing the investigation, kind of independent of the group that's going to make a decision based upon the facts of whatever the facts How are. logical is that? It's brilliant. Two teams of people, one of them taking this, the spirit of compliance and ethics programs seriously, gather all the facts, bring it to leadership and that sort of thing. And at the same time, another uh, effort is underway to make sure that whoever is accusing the organization of whatever um, and making what ultimately could be a case to a judge, jury, or mediator that, that, that both sides are presented uh, properly. So two, two separate things going on. You know, at a minimum, the general counsel on the uh, uh, compliance committee, of course, they, you know, there are companies, a lot of them, with the general counsel slash compliance officers. So, you know, we're debating a thing that could be done a number of ways. I know I, I, people are very successful, ethical, regulatory, compliant companies that <clears throat> take a lot of approaches. We're just, as we've been doing for a long time, debating best practice and options and various ways of going about doing it, but 
I would suggest to people to take a serious, long, hard work. A, have a compliance committee. Right. They should have your back. There should be a group of people, including maybe a board member, that study, 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 no more, meet 12 times a year. Be aware of what a compliance program is and what the current things that are going on. So when the big thing happens, you don't have to educate and share the problem. You got a handful of people who can go to the rest of the organization, the C-suite, the board, eventually maybe to the enforcement community, and say whatever they need to say, and they say it with great uh, acumen because they, they've been brought along for years. That's what we got out of ours. I, I uh, did some things 22 years ago that were just not being done anywhere in the country. I mean, major, you know, major problem was found, a major problem was dealt with. Typically, there is not a team of people that get it. They're, they're, they're some poor soul running up down the hall with their hair on fire alone. Uh, I was able to bring the compliance committee through every step of the investigation. <clears throat> I proved the point about five different ways with five different groups of experts. You wouldn't have to do so much today because they're just, they didn't, never heard of a compliance officer or compliance program. You think there's resistance now. Trust me, there was more 22 years ago. But by the time I got done, there wasn't a person in that room who wasn't saying, this is ridiculous. Why did you take this? It wouldn't be that long, but why did you take this many steps? Right. And I said, because this is new. We have to tell people who question what we're doing that we proved it five different ways. <laughs> there was a, I actually, there was a, I'm going to tell this story in a little bit bizarre way, but I actually found the person who wrote the law. I flew him in. The sentencing guidelines? I'm going to have to go into more detail here. In, in healthcare, the biggest risk area is billing. Right. And there is, the law is built around a, a set of codes that this code means this thing happened and you should pay this much. Right. And uh, I found, I just so happened to be friends with the doctor who chaired the committee that created the codes for the particular area where we found the problem. I flew him to our organization, showed him some samples of what had been done, and he said, this is not right. And the people that I was in disagreement with <laughs> said, well, he's an idiot. <laughs> so, uh, I actually asked the individuals involved, who would you trust? I'd, I'd, I'd gotten our in-house experts. I had hired two consulting firms and a law firm. I brought in the guy who chaired, the, the doctor of this subspecialty chaired. And then the, um, <clears throat> I said to this, I've been sitting in alone in his office. This has been about a year of him screaming at me believe it or not, calmly saying, okay, what do we got to do now for you to understand or agree? Just, there just wasn't a compliance thing at the time. I couldn't rely on, look at all the dead bodies in the street. Right. We were going to be the, one of the first. And uh, he quickly pulled out a piece of paper 
wrote down the three friends of his that were doctors in this subspecialty and said, call these guys. And uh, we did this all under attorney-client privilege, and we called them, and we uh, talked to them, and they said, I wouldn't do this this way. And we went back to them, and I said, your uh, buddies wouldn't do this. And uh, he said, uh, you, you guys are still wrong. And I said, we're done. <laughs> and I went back to the committee for about the fifth time, and I've now said, I got this expert five times, higher and higher level expert, and then finally the people he considered experts, and they said we shouldn't we should we should fix this problem. And by at this point, there are people who, if I would have just walked in the room and said our expert says this wrong, they would not have backed me. Not in a million years. Some of them. Because, you know, I mean, it just wasn't heard of in those days and and it just wasn't a lot. And I was eager to prove over and over. I mean, the people listening to this podcast should think about still using these tactics. Don't just get one person's opinion. It was very inexpensive for me. I had our staff do all the work. I mean, the bulk of the 90%. And I just had people come in and verify for a few thousand dollars. It really wasn't that expensive. It didn't take that long. Government investigations take three times the time I took. Right. <clears throat> so maybe a little side point here, Tom, is, is uh, you know, and, and again, you know, and I got to use you as an example because we do this podcast together. But if somebody's out there with a question about corruption and they've checked with their in-house counsel and they think this and they checked with the other experts in the building or whatever, or maybe an outside counsel they typically use, it's kind of an FCPA expert. You know, go get somebody like yourself. I've been doing nothing but this for years. Uh, amen to that. <laughs> Flat fee, monthly retainer. Very, very reasonable. And I answer questions. I would just get as many people to, you know, people don't want to make a mistake. Leadership doesn't want a mistake. So here's my experience when I've been that person on the other end of the phone. I get the call. Tom, we want to do this. This is proposed. I said, walk me through your thought process. Walk me through your analysis. What, what did your analysis show? And the answer is always, they were right to start with. They just needed an outside person to validate that they were right. Well, people, excuse me, but people used to make fun of this. People won't listen to me unless I bring in the guy with the out-of-town plates or whatever the joke is. And uh, there's some legitimacy here. Look, I have gone to the dark side. I have been a CEO for, since 2001, 16 years, whatever it is. And I have people coming into my office every week. Oh, my gosh. Their hair is on fire, which concerns me because it's a health issue. <laughs> no smoking in the office. <laughs> and, and, and this is the end of the world, and we've got to fix it. It turns out that CEOs see maybe seven, eight out of ten people turn out to be wrong. They want to use ten times the ten time ten tons of resource for a one ton problem. And they come in sometimes with no data. They come in with lousy data. They come in with passion and emotion and 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 one expert. Uh, I'm not all. 
I don't want to see people spend hundreds of thousands of dollars. It doesn't take hundreds of thousands of dollars to get expert opinion. Sometimes you need a bigger project and it costs a lot of money. But in terms of doing what I'm advocating, I think it should be respected that it is needed by leadership to say, I can prove to you that this is a 10 ton problem and requires X number of tons of solution because I've not only studied it with every internal expert I can, but I've also got one or two outside people and then there's some data and case study and information or whatever it is you got to do. Why not be efficient but prove five different ways what it is you're trying to get leadership to do? You have to be empathetic, which is what you and I and Jenny talked about. <clears throat> in a sense, you're in a negotiation, you're in communication, and you're doing all this stuff, right? Interpersonal skills at this point. Some facts, some data, some analysis, some whatever else, but... Um, Get in their head. Try and have some empathy for these people that sit on the board, come to four meetings a year, don't have a lot of time, have 20 other things as important as compliance on their board agenda every month, every quarter. Um, understand that leadership has people coming into their office with their hair on fire every month. Be that person who does a better job of proving your own point. Prove it five different ways. Be efficient with your time. You can do it. Uh, it, it. It's a good idea. So we've got about 10 minutes left, and I want to really change the focus and the topic because I heard something at the first keynote this morning that really struck me, and the panel was on uh, Brexit and what Brexit means for compliance. And uh, Jonathan Armstrong of Cordery had lined up a... Um, the UK ambassador to Czech Republic to speak. Uh, she couldn't. She had to pull out the last minute, so he got a couple of uh, of his colleagues to um, to pinch hit for it for her. And um, they said some things that I think actually you said and I said, but I want to lay them out in the context of the U.S. election and compliance and Brexit and compliance. What they said about Brexit and compliance was number one. The UK Bribery Act's not going away. UK's going to enforce its own laws. Number two, whatever EU laws there are against bribery and corruption, those are going to be kept in place because the EU is interested in having consistency of at least laws across Europe, including Britain. My wife would say Britain is not part of uh, Europe. It's separate. Uh, but the EU has, an, excuse me, the UK has an interest in also having a trade deal with the EU. And that's what they want out of this. The EU wants a divorce. Britain wants a trade deal. And as part of that trade deal, they're going to have a consistent application of almost all laws that they have in place now. What's going to be missing is European Court of Justice will not have jurisdiction over uh, UK laws. It'll be UK courts. Uh, the bottom line was keep calm and do compliance. Now, you didn't use that exact phrase uh, in November and December, but you wrote about compliance in the context of the new administration. Then President-elect Trump had made several negative statements about the FCPA. Um, and uh, you and I both thought that whatever he may or may not think about the FCPA, 
compliance is not going away, and compliance is not going away because as Britain <coughs> sees that law as a positive for trade with their European brethren, we in the United States, and more importantly, businesses in the United States, see that law as a positive for U.S. business interests. And that compliance is not going away. If Donald Trump pulled out a magic pen and could actually do something, um, including repeal of the FCPA, <laughs> which uh, he hasn't done, and the Attorney General and the Assistant Attorney General that have been nominated, and indeed the SEC uh, chair nominee, have all come out in favor of uh, continued enforcement of U.S. anti-corruption laws, including the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. It's a very long-winded way of saying you know, compliance is here to stay, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Uh, because it's part of the business fabric now. And we heard it, to, I heard it this morning from the Britain perspective. It's part of their business fabric. I, first of all, I just want to share that I think people are exaggerating. A lot of people are upset. And I think they're exaggerating uh, what might happen in the U.S. or what might happen in, in uh, any other country, including Britain. Um, Nobody's talking about eliminating, uh, making corruption legal. Nobody is talking about changing laws so you can set up two million bogus accounts for your bank customers. Nobody's talking about a law that will allow you to pour 120 million gallons or whatever it was into the ocean. Nobody's going to, to eliminate a law that would let a pedophile run around your campus for 10 years, or run around society uh, after being discovered as a pedophile on your campus. Everyone forever and a day who does any of those things, or writes software uh, to defeat um, emissions tests, or creates airbags that kill people and then hide the data from the public, don't fix the problem. It's going to be illegal. It will always be illegal. I need my friends and colleagues to make sure that their passion about their political beliefs don't cause them to think that anybody is going to be able to make those things legal. Now let's just say, for instance, just for giggles, that a politician of any party was to propose that corruption in the United States and paying bribery is now legal. Let's assume, which is ridiculous, first of all, nobody's ever going to do that. Right. Secondly, nobody's ever going to get the votes to pass the law. Third, if you think there have been big protests to date, I would predict three million people in D.C. In fact, I have numbers on this, Tom. In Romania, a government decided to change just a tiny part to make a little bit of corruption legal. I think it was $50,000 a year, uh, $50,000 a year in corruption is okay. Something like that. I can't remember the numbers. Maybe euros, it may be some other thing. But they were going to change a part of the law to make a little bit of corruption okay. It's all that you need to know. Right. 500,000 people left their homes, went downtown, and surrounded the building. I, there's somebody here from Romania, 
right. this conference, and he said they think it was 10% of the population, way more than 500,000. And the people stood in the streets, and there were some hooligans that were uh, theoretically paid for to start fights so that they could be some excuse to ignore the people. And the people literally backed up. Every time somebody started breaking a window or causing any trouble, the crowd just ran away from them. And so they said, you can't do this. You can't make this look like we're unreasonable people. We're reasonable people, and if you do this, you will regret it. You think there's a lot of people here now, we'll have more later if you act. And a government that has been a little reluctant sometimes to listen to this sort of thing, stopped. The point is, is that all of this talk about compliance negatively affected by a single individual, a single government, a single country, a single political party is absurd. Compliance is bigger than any person, party, government, country. It is such an elegant, beautiful solution to problems all over the world. It's spreading. I almost said the words like wildfire, and I try not to exaggerate. I like, I like to exaggerate and say big things. And I'm not so sure that would be unfair. I, I, I see what happened in Romania. There's a woman here in a booth marketing a new master's degree in Spain in compliance. Uh, we have 270 people here from all sorts of other countries. Um, this is too big. It is The cat is out of the bag. All those people who have resisted us for 20 years are, are losing their battle. Nobody's going to be able to come in and stop it because this is good for human beings. It's good for companies. It's good for countries. People, companies that are more ethical and regulatory compliant uh, are going to uh, outpace their competitors because trust is a key factor in partnering and, and entering into businesses in new countries. Countries that get more of their companies to do this are going to be more economically successful. If you look at, I think it's Trace, where they list corruption index of countries. Transparency International. Transparency International list of, of most trusted to least trusted companies or countries in the countries, world. Right. And then you list next to it the, the most highest level of standard of living to the lowest level of standard of living. Those lists are terrifyingly I, cl close. People in the top, all countries in the top third are in the top third of both lists, middle third, middle third, and bottom third. It's really a little more close than that. And the point being is that in the, the global economy is here, it's a done deal, it's over. You, you as a company or a country want to be successful economically, you've got to sell your stuff everywhere, your products or your services. To do that, you've got to be trusted. If you have no rule of law, your, your country is going to suffer dearly. If you have the rule of law and you don't enforce it, you're corrupt. <clears throat> you're going to suffer dearly. You have the rule of law and you enforce it, you're going to do better. If you have compliance programs in every company finding problems before they start on a real-time basis rather than wait for the government to catch you, those companies in those countries are going to do better. Nobody is going to stop this.
You know, I think that's a great note to end on, Roy. It's been a lot of fun. Otherwise, I feel pretty neutral about the whole thing, Tom. <laughs> I'm never going to let you use uh, numbers again. That was great. <laughs> All right, sir. Thank you. It's been big fun. I've enjoyed this, as always. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Unfair and Unbalanced. If you listen to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast it was a, as it would help in our rankings and get out the word about the only podcast which relates directly to the compliance profession. I hope you will join us again for the next episode of Unfair and Unbalanced, a podcast with Tom Fox and Roy Snell. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.